Hello and welcome to the AMA Update video and podcast. Today we have our weekly look at the headlines with the AMA's Vice President of Science, Medicine and Public Health, Andrea Garcia in Chicago. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer, also in Chicago. Welcome back, Andrea. Hi, Todd. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, Andrea, let's start with some big news from last week. It looks like we have another COVID vaccine to choose from. What's the story here? Yeah, that's right. Last week, we saw the FDA authorize the updated Novavax COVID-19 vaccine, and that's for anyone age 12 and older who has not already received their updated mRNA vaccine. Um, just as a reminder, the Novavax vaccine relies on protein-based technology, and that's to train the immune system to fight that virus that causes COVID-19. It's a different technology from Pfizer and Moderna's mRNA vaccine. Uh, Novavax vaccine has been updated to target the XBB 1.5 Omicron subvariant, and we know it's also been shown to be effective against EG5, which is the dominant strain here in the U.S., as a part of that FDA authorization, that original Novavax COVID-19 vaccine is no longer authorized for use in the U.S. So just to clarify, are we waiting on the CDC's recommendation now? Actually, the Novavax vaccine has already been recommended by the CDC uh, in September when the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices met to review those updated COVID-19 vaccine. That discussion included uh, information on Novavax. Uh, it wasn't yet authorized by FDA at the time, but Novavax did present their data to ACIP, uh, and they voted to broadly recommend the vaccines that are authorized by the FDA for the 2023-2024 season. And then we saw in a statement uh, this past Monday, Novavax said that they've already shipped millions of doses to distributors. So that vaccine should start to be available sometime this week uh, in thousands of locations across the U.S., including pharmacies and physician offices. Now, Andrea, I just got my COVID vaccine over the weekend and I was walking out and I said, oh, no, I forgot my vaccine card uh, before realizing this was no longer necessary. So on this topic, the CDC shared information about the future of those now iconic vaccination cards uh, that we used to use in the pandemic. What's the news there? Yeah, so we saw CDC say they're no longer going to be distributing that those vaccine cards, which up until this point, as you were saying, um, those have been updated regularly with people's updated booster information. The CDC did encourage people to contact their state health department immunization information system or IIS if they want to keep track of their vaccination history, including COVID-19 vaccines. Your state health department, to be clear, is not going to issue you a vaccination card, but they can provide a digital or paper copy of your vaccine record. Uh, according to the majority of pharmacy chains, you don't need your old card to get that updated vaccine. Some uh, pharmacies have said people are bringing in their vaccination cards to their appointments and pharmacists will still fill in that information with the new dose. It's also worth noting that the U.S. government is no longer requiring people to show their vaccination card when they're coming in uh, from outside of the country. And most other countries have also stopped re requiring that proof of vaccination to enter. But it's still, uh, of course, obviously wise uh, to check with your destination before leaving the U.S. Well, how times change uh, and for the better. Uh, staying on COVID, uh, that subject for a moment, there was a new study 
with findings that could one day help to treat and diagnose long COVID better. Andrea, tell us more about that. Yeah, so that study was published in Nature and it used blood tests to identify biological markers that could be associated with long COVID. The researchers took advantage of machine learning to analyze those immune markers and hormone levels in about 270 adult participants. Uh, they compared those with and without long COVID symptoms at least one year after having COVID. And they found the activity of T cells and B cells was irregular in those patients who had long COVID. Now, one of the strongest predictors of long COVID uh, was that these patients tended to have lower cortisol levels. And that could help explain why many people with long COVID experience that profound fatigue. The study also found that some dormant viruses like the ones that cause mononucleosis or Epstein-Barr can activate again in long COVID patients. It's not clear yet whether the dormant viruses are causing symptoms or they're fleeing a problem with the immune system. Uh, this was a small study, so more research is gonna be needed to understand the significance of these results. But still, I think finding those clear differences in blood biomarkers of people with long COVID could be a key first step in helping us uh, develop a test to help diagnose the illness and develop future treatments. That would be really, really important. Andrea, do we have any recent data on how many people have been affected by long COVID? Yeah, so we have estimates of people in the U.S. with uh, lingering COVID symptoms, which we know very, very widely. Um, in a new survey from the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics, um, they say long COVID may have affected as many as 962,000 children and 17.9 million adults. Uh, so in 2022, about 1.3% of kids and 6.9% of adults had ever had long COVID. The survey showed that long COVID was most prevalent in women and people who are Hispanic, adults who lived in rural areas and adults aged 35 to 49. It also showed that Asian adults were the least likely to have long COVID as were people whose family income was 400% more than the federal poverty level. Uh, long COVID does remain rare in children. However, the survey showed that it was uh, most prevalent in girls, in kids ages 12 to 17, and in kids who are Hispanic. Well, we certainly still have a lot to learn there, but uh, good that we're seeing uh, those continued efforts at understanding long COVID. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Uh, Andrea, we're gonna switch gears from COVID to a different topic. CDC also released guidance for a tool to help fight sexually transmitted infections. What do we need to know there? 
So last week we saw the CDC released draft recommendations on the use of post-exposure prophylaxis with doxycycline or doxypep uh, for, pre for preventing some bacterial uh, sexually transmitted infections or STIs. That includes chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. Those recommendations are based on research that found one 200 milligram dose of doxycycline may be effective in preventing infections if it's taken within 72 hours of unprotected sex. Uh, this is different from that traditional approach of prescribing antibiotics to treat an infection after they're diagnosed. Uh, in that clinical trial, the combined incidence of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis was lower by two thirds with doxypep than following the standard of care. Uh, the CDC recommendations for doxypep would apply to men who have sex with men and transgender women. Uh, in an interview with CBS News, CDC's Dr. Jonathan Merman, who was a co-author of the draft recommendations said it's uh, going to take game changing innovations for us to turn the STI epidemic around and doxypep is the first major new prevention intervention we have for STIs in decades. Dr. Merman went on to say that the implementation of the doxypep approach could prevent an estimated uh, tens of thousands of infections. Uh, those are some pretty uh, sizable numbers. Andrea, you said that these are draft recommendations. So what happens next year? Yeah, so that's right. And the CDC right now is seeking public comment on its proposal, and that comment period is open until November 16th. This gives clinicians, people affected by STIs and other partners, the opportunity to weigh in before we see CDC finalize those recommendations. Uh, the FDA has not officially approved the medication uh, for STI post-exposure prophylaxis, but doxypep will remain available as an off-label prescription when used for STI prevention. Uh, these draft recommendations come at a time when the rates of STIs have risen across the US. We know there were 2.5 million STI cases reported in 2021. That represents a 7% increase from the year before. I think it's also important to note that the CDC's experts on antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic stewardship did provide consultation during the development of these guidelines, and they're involved in planning how CDC is going to track the impact of these guidelines, because there are important questions uh, that remain um, around the development of antimicrobial resistance, uh, for example, as well as the effectiveness of this approach for other populations and impacts on the microbiome. We don't know yet when the final recommendations are expected, but we'll continue to monitor this story and share any updates as they become available. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for that update and for your perspective as usual. That wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed this discussion, can support more programming like this by becoming an AMA member. Find out more at ama-assn.org join. We'll be back soon with another AMA update. In the meantime, you can find all our videos and podcasts at ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Please take care.